are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hey everybody, my name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join us here on this Thursday afternoon for our live question and answer program. If we've never been introduced before, I am a pastor for many years, but I also have sort of a unique kind of contribution to the body of Christ. I have a text commentary on the entire Bible that some people find useful. Uh, People use it at my own website, EnduringWord.com, or sometimes they use it uh, at an excellent Bible resource called Blue Letter Bible, uh, that's blb.org. And so one of the things I just love to do in my life is I love to talk about the Bible, I love to answer Bible questions, I certainly don't pretend to have all the answers, I just kind of get together with people here on a Thursday afternoon, and I do the best we can. The way we do it is that you write your question in the side chat, and then we respond to the question. We have a moderator. His name is Devin. You can say hi to Devin in the side chat. And uh, we also love to hear where you're from because we have a wonderfully international audience. Write your question in the uh, side chat. Devin selects from those the questions he thinks might be helpful to the broadest audience possible, and we prioritize those particular questions. We also like to get to questions that came in after we cut them off or that we just simply weren't able to get to. So last week, uh, when I was actually doing the question answer from a pickup truck in Tennessee, last week, a late question came in that uh, I was looking over the chat transcript and I said, hey, let's answer that one. We want to get to the answer or the question that came from Shout to Grace. Shout to Grace asked a very simple question that we're going to make our lead question for today. And the lead question is simply this, um, who made God? Fundamental question, isn't it? Who made God? I mean, if we say that everything has to have an origin, everything has to have a beginning, everything has to have a cause, then who or what made or caused God? So shout to Grace. Let me give you a very quick answer to that question. The quick answer to your question is simply to say, no one made God. God has always been. God is eternal with no beginning and no end. Now, this is demonstrated to us by several passages of Scripture. Here are two of them. Psalm 90 verses 1 and 2 say this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's a very plain and straightforward statement, isn't it? Again, notice it. Before anything else was formed, you were. You were from everlasting to everlasting. You are, and I love this, you're God. God, the true God, is different from any pretend deity or different from everything else that's created in this world. He has no beginning and has no end. I like the old commentator, Adam Clark. He wrote a few hundred years ago about the time of George Washington or the uh, early years of the American nation, the United States. Adam Clark said of this statement, he was an English commentator. He said, 
This is the highest description of the eternity of God to which human language can reach. He said that of the phrase, from everlasting to everlasting. It's a broad, comprehensive statement telling us that God is in some way that is beyond our comprehension, outside our time domain. God is eternal, no beginning, no end. Another passage of scripture that gives a similar thought is Psalm uh, 93, verse 2. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Now, again, that's just a very simple, powerful statement speaking of the eternal nature and character of God. You are from everlasting. Powerful, important passage there. So when we read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, we understand that God himself was was before the beginning. God existed before the beginning and has existed always. Again, he is a being outside the time domain. Now, some people are troubled by the question, where did God come from? They're troubled by the question, who created God? Uh, There's atheists and those who object to the idea of the biblical concept of God who love to bring this up. But again, I would say that the answer is found in the very definition of God, that God is the uncreated being, that he's eternal, that he's without beginning and without end. Like, if you notice this, I love the um, words of the late Dr. J. Edwin Orr. He used a very memorable definition of God. And I think it's a thoroughly biblical definition of God. He said this, God is the only infinite, eternal, and unchanging spirit, the perfect being in whom all things begin and continue and end. Now, again, that's not a biblical definition of who God is, but I think it's a pretty good philosophical definition of God. God is infinite, he's eternal, and he's unchangeable. And in him, all things begin, continue, and end. You see, the the real question is simply to ask ourselves, is the God that's given to us by logic and by the Bible, does this particular God actually exist? That's really the question, isn't it? Look, all our wishing that there is a God will not create a God if there is, in fact, no God. You can wish there's a God all you want, but if there is no God, it's not going to make it. But let me tell you this. Every atheist denial of God will not remove God if there is, in fact, a God. And so the idea of God just being the projection of somebody's wishes or desires, I think you can answer back and just say the same, that every atheist denial of God is a projection of wish and desires. Leave aside any projection of wish and desire. No, we have to decide whether or not there actually is a God. You see, you could say that old time atheism said, I don't believe in God. Modern atheism says, you are a fool if you do believe in God. And 
those who believe in God are often accused of believing in God out of a psychological need to believe that there is a God who makes sense of the world. Yet it can just as accurately be said that those who claim that there is no God believe that out of a psychological need to avoid or escape accountability before the judge of all the earth. It's very interesting to me as I read or listen to many of the modern arguments against God. Many times, not always, of course, but many times those arguments come down to a simple denial of God's right to judge. They look at something that's recorded in the Bible that is a judgment of God. When God judged the world in Noah's time, when God judged the Canaanites in Joshua's time, when God judged other peoples at other times, they, they say how horrific judge. And basically what they're saying is God has no right to judge. Listen, if you're an atheist, I don't blame you for trying to claim that God has no right to judge. Because there's something deep inside of you that knows that one day you will answer to God as judge and you will be held to account for what you've done or what you haven't done in regard to God. You see, many people today want to deny God's right to judge or they demand that God should judge things exactly as their accusers would demand. I'm fascinated how many people think that God should think just as a modern 21st century uh, progressive or liberal should think, that that should define who God is, that he should think that just like the New York Times uh, page or, or what modern progressive thought, so to speak, says. Listen, God is eternal and he's not bound by time constraints or the constraints of culture. That's why that in the present day, the most effective efforts for atheism, in my opinion, are not based on logic or arguments at all. They're based on mockery. They're based on setting aside clear thinking and true arguments. And basically, they just try to mock the idea of God and they try to make you feel like a fool for believing in God. Friends, let me tell you, there is more than enough evidence that God has given us of his existence. And just because somebody folds their arms and says with great confidence, well, it's not enough evidence for me, it doesn't mean that there's not enough evidence. God has given us plenty of evidence of his existence, and we can be confident in the existence of God and in the existence of a God who is, as the Bible says he is, eternal in all his nature. So I hope that is a answer for you that makes some sense. If we could just summarize it like this, who made God? Well, no one. By definition, God is eternal and he always has been. It's been said that at the end of it all, you either have an eternal creator or you have an eternal creation. Either God is eternal or matter. The material world around us is eternal. I believe, along with many other people, of course, that it makes a lot more sense to say that God is eternal, and that's the truth. So, shout to grace, 
Thank you for your question. I'm sorry we couldn't get to it last week, but as you understand, we just simply can't get to every question that comes into us. And some questions come in after we've cut off questions for the day. But we do like to follow up on questions that we weren't able to deal with in a broadcast. We save them, we look at them, and we hope to answer them in a future question and answer time. So very pleased you could join us. Very pleased that we could give away last week a set of four print commentaries on the uh, book of Psalms. I feel like a fool because if I was better prepared, I would have those four commentaries to show you what we sent to our viewer who lives in Ontario, Canada. We sent to them, and let me tell you this, we're going to do more of those giveaways. That was a lot of fun to give away something last week. I think we're going to make giveaways a more regular part of our Thursday afternoons because we love our Thursday afternoon viewing audience. We're so pleased that you could join us. And uh, even though we're not doing a giveaway today, you can expect them more often in future Thursday afternoon. Um, Thursday afternoon, at least here in California time, Thursday afternoon question and answer times. That's it for our lead question today. Let's go now to some of the questions that have come in on the side chat. Again, they're forwarded to me by the moderator, so I'm just looking at my messages and see that a question has come in from Adonis. And Adonis asks this question, Please compare and contrast the ransom theory slash Christus Victor with the penal substitutionary atonement and explain why you prefer one over the other. Well, Adonis, you're asking a very valid question here. You're asking about the ransom theory. The idea is that the atonement of Jesus was like a ransom that was paid and set his people free. Now, of course, there's complications of that theory because you get into a very elaborate theological discussion about to whom was the ransom paid? Was the ransom paid to God the Father? Was the ransom paid to Satan? There's some debate about that that has followed throughout the history of theology. But the ransom theory basically sees the payment of Jesus at the cross as being made to pay a ransom to free the captive people of God. Then you have the Christus Victor understanding of the atonement. This emphasizes the fact that the atonement that Jesus accomplished at the cross was fundamentally a victory over the powers of darkness and death. And it's this victory over the powers of darkness and death that sets the people of God free. We were held in bondage. Now, you say the ransom theory slash Christus Victor because those two theories are much the same. They overlap a good deal, but they're not exactly the same, but they're certainly related. And then you say with the penal substitutionary atonement. Now, let me explain those terms for our viewing audience. Penal has to do with the law. Uh, in the United States, we will call a a prison, a place where criminals are held, a uh, penitentiary. It's related to that word penal. We'll call it a penal institute because it just simply has to do with law. So it really has to do with a law substitutionary atonement or a punishment substitutionary atonement. The idea here is that Jesus stood in our place as guilty sinners and he received the punishment that should have come upon his people and he bore that punishment so that his people, those who trust in him, those who are elect, would not have to suffer the punishment. 
Now, your question is, can you explain why I prefer one over the other? Well, listen, I don't believe that these different understandings of the atonement are contradictory. Is there a sense in which our, uh, in which the atonement of Jesus on the cross was in fact a ransom? Yes, because Jesus spoke of it in those terms. He said that the Son of Man gives his life as a ransom for many. Is it true that the victory of Jesus at the cross was a victory over the powers of darkness and death? Absolutely. In Colossians, it says that he triumphed over principalities and powers. That refers to dark, demonic powers. And he triumphed over them in it, and he disarmed principalities and powers. Surely it was. But I think that more than those two conceptions, we have more so the idea in the scriptures, the idea that what Jesus accomplished at the cross was a freeing of God's people from the guilt and the penalty of sin and judgment that they deserved. I want to stress with you, Adonis, and anybody else that's listening, I don't regard these as contradictory. They are complementary. The work that Jesus did at the cross is many-faceted. No one understanding of the atonement encompasses every aspect of what Jesus did. We need multiple views, multiple visions of what did. Now, I place the idea of the penal substitutionary atonement, the idea that Jesus suffered in our place for the punishment for sin, the legal punishment for sin that we deserve, I put that as having perhaps greater prominence as the others, but it certainly does not exclude many of these understandings of the atonement that are for us. I think we need to come back and understand the many dimensions of what Jesus did for us at the cross and realize that, again, as I said, no one understanding of what Jesus did at the cross comprehends everything that was accomplished at the cross, and this is what we can understand and sort of glory in. So Adonis, I hope I've made myself clear enough for you, just a basic uh, understanding in a very short and incomplete way as to what these different understandings of the atonement are and sort of how they relate to each other. Let me go on to a next question from Carmel. Carmel asks, the Jewish leaders stoned Stephen, Stephen. Wasn't that against Roman law? Earlier, the leaders had said that they needed Pilate to declare a death sentence against Jesus because of Roman law. Well, Carmel, you are exactly right. Uh, again, I have a very high opinion of you, our viewers, to our weekly question and answer time. Because you guys ask great questions, perceptive questions, questions that show your reading and understanding the Bible. Come on, you are exactly correct. When the religious leaders in the book of Acts stoned Stephen to death, they were operating outside the permission granted to them by the Roman law. They were running a risk. And the sense is, is that they were so overcome with frustration exasperation, and even hatred that they did something that was dangerous for them to do. And what was, in fact, dangerous for them to do? Well, it was dangerous for them to go beyond what the Romans permitted them to do and to execute Stephen. They were definitely running a risk. Now, maybe because it was the Passover season, 
and the antenna of the Romans was much more heightened. They were much more sensitive to disruption and things that were going on in the city of Jerusalem. Maybe specifically because it was the Passover season, maybe that helps explain from a human perspective why when it came to Jesus, the religious leaders were not willing to take the risk of executing Jesus themselves by stoning, but rather they forwarded Jesus to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, for his execution. Now, that may be the reason why on a human level it happened. Let's talk just for a moment on why from a divine level it happened that way. It happened on a divine level that the Jews themselves did not execute Jesus, but they forwarded him to Pilate because it had to be fulfilled that Jesus would be crucified, as Jesus himself predicted, and that Jesus would be hung on a tree, so to speak, to fulfill the prophecies from the Old Testament that spoke of the one hanging on a tree bearing a curse. There are many intimations in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be crucified, the piercing and such, but then there are other intimations specifically made directly by Jesus, not intimations, direct predictions by Jesus that he would be crucified and those had to be fulfilled. And if the Jewish leaders in Jesus's day would have executed him, it would not have been by crucifixion. It would have been by stoning. So, Carmel, you're seeing the situation accurately, but you're just pointing out a tension that is there in the scriptures. The Jewish leaders were going beyond their permissions when they were executing Stephen, and they ran a risk for it. Whether they suffered anything for it, whether some of these leaders were called to account before Pilate or some of the other leaders, we don't exactly know, but they were running a risk in doing so. All right, on to the next question that comes from Tunal Banan. Uh, here, the subway brother or sister, perhaps, in uh, Sweden, asks, how old is the universe? The Bible says the earth is 6,000 years old, but did the universe exist? It says that the earth is 6,000 years old, but did the universe exist before that? Is the universe 14 billion old, and did a big bang start it? All right, Tunnel Banan. There are several questions here. First of all, I'm going to question what you say about the Bible says that the earth is 6,000 years old. I'm going to say the Bible does not exactly say that. Now, that is a conclusion that many people have drawn simply by going back in history, counting the years of the generations that are given to us in the book of Genesis and other places. But this is what you need to understand, is that those generations are not necessarily complete. So I'm not someone who says with any confidence that the earth is 6,000 years old. Again, I know where people get that figure, but we are assuming that those generations are complete and they are not necessarily complete. Um, now, with saying that, I think that the most direct understanding of the Bible does not suggest that the Bible is as old as the vast majority of scientists and other researchers say that it is, millions upon millions of years old, and then again, the universe as well. I have to say that my resolution of this is to simply understand that I don't have a problem with God creating an earth 
with age built into it. Now, I understand there are dear and serious brothers and sisters who are kind of outraged by that suggestion. I have to honestly say, I don't quite understand their outrage. They think that it makes God deceptive, but I don't think necessarily so. And I just go back to what we understand about creation in the book of Genesis. We understand that God created Adam not as a fertilized egg, not as a newborn baby, not as a five-year-old. God created Adam as an adult male. God created Adam with age built into him. We also know that there were trees in the Garden of Eden. When God created trees, did they have rings on the interior of the trees? Again, that's an indication of having age built into it. Um, I could give you many other examples, but I think you get the point. I don't have any problem myself, God creating a universe with age built into it. As to why he did it, I don't know. We could speculate on reasons why, but that would just be our speculation. So I don't want to hinder the scientist in any way whatsoever from doing all the research they can, from seeing that from everything we can see and measure and understand how old they perceive the universe to be, but just to understand that God may have built the universe with age built into it. And the same thing I would say for the scientist as well as the Bible student. We don't need to feel dismayed by the scientists saying the universe is this many billions of years old. The earth is this many millions of years old. Fine. Scientists, do your work. We're happy for your work. Just don't think that you get the final word, that you have the only voice when it comes to understanding the origins of life on this earth and uh, in the universe. No, that is a question that goes beyond the scientist. It has to come back also to the theologian. Now, I, I don't believe that the theologian has the only voice in that question as well. The Bible does We bring in our knowledge from many different fields, but we don't exclude philosophy, theology, most especially what the Bible says. And I think the Bible gives us the greatest understanding about this. So, uh, did God use a big bang to start the earth? Well, I don't see why not. I mean, when it says God created the heavens and the earth, something happened. And if it was a big bang, well, then praise the Lord for that. So that's simply the way I would explain this. I tend to feel at peace with the answer that God created a universe and an earth with age built into it. Again, I fully understand that there are other people who have a great deal of problem with that answer. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm just answering for myself in that particular regard. Thank you for that question. Let me go on to the next question that comes from George. George asks the question, can you explain the word Elohim? Okay, well, George, uh, to my understanding, and uh, look, I feel like I know the Bible pretty well, but I don't guard myself on an expert having to do with everything with the Bible. So maybe somebody has a better or more complete answer than I do on this. But to my understanding, I would explain it simply like this. El is the ancient Hebrew 
And in many related languages, the uh, ancient Near Eastern, you could say that, the ancient Hebrew word for God. And it's the generic word for God, much like the English word God. You know, God is a word that people apply to the true God, the God who's revealed to us in the Bible. That's the true God. Uh, But people apply the word God to all sorts of things, Uh, to the Greek and Roman gods, uh, to the gods of other religions, uh, to objects that people might regard as a god. Oh, he just bought a new car and he treats it as his god. You know, those kind of things. So we understand that in English, we have a generic word for a deity, God, G-O-D. Well, in ancient Hebrew, there's a generic word for deity, El. Elohim is the plural version of God. Now, you could translate it gods, simply in the plural, and it is translated that way legitimately several times in the Old Testament. But there is also the idea of the plurality of majesty. This is not only true in ancient Hebrew, but it's true in many other related languages where a single or a particular being is called by the plural to denote and to declare their majesty. Elohim is not the singular. It's not even what's called the dual, the plural, just in a sense of meaning two. It means three or more declaring the great majesty. So Elohim is the plural, meaning three and beyond, version of the generic word for God used in ancient Hebrew. Now, we, and I'm speaking for myself and anybody here who might agree with me, as Christian Trinitarians, which I think is sort of a repetition of the same thing. If you are a true Christian, you are a Trinitarian. If you are a true Trinitarian, I would assume that you are a Christian. We understand that that multiplicity in the word Elohim is at least consistent with the idea that there is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There are people such as the Jewish people who understand the word Elohim to not denote anything Trinitarian. Of course, Jewish people wouldn't agree with that, but they would agree with the idea of it denoting only the great majesty of a single God, of God in pure singularity, just simply the God um, that the Jewish people would understand in their theology. So again, George, I hope that that's a good enough explanation there, brings you enough understanding. That's the background to the ancient Hebrew word Elohim. Other words for God in the Hebrew language are, of course, the name of God, best expressed by the word Yahweh. Uh, More ancient pronunciations of that would sometimes be the word Jehovah, but Yahweh is a better, or Yahweh is a better uh, pronunciation of that. And then, of course, God in the Old Testament is referred to many times by the word Adonai. Adonai is simply the generic word in the ancient Hebrew for Lord. And Lord in the ancient Hebrew, just like we would use the word Lord in English, 
sometimes refers to God as being Lord over all, and sometimes it is simply a respectful address of somebody else. As in Old English, you would say, Lord this or Lord that. Okay, that's a quick summary of Elohim and other names or titles or references to God in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures. Next question comes from TJ. Why were the archangel Michael and Satan arguing about Moses's body? Were they trying to figure out where God buried him? Well, TJ, you got a way of asking good questions here. Difficult questions. This idea of Michael, the archangel, and Satan disputing over the body of Moses comes to us from the book of Jude. And in the book of Jude, he makes it very clear that they disputed over the body of Moses. And in that dispute, uh, Michael would not even defame or uh, revile Satan, but he would speak to him in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord rebuke you. Now you're asking a good question that is not answered directly by the Jude text. In Jude, we learn that they were disputing. We're not told why. And it comes to us to sort of speculate. Why would Michael the archangel and Satan be disputing over the body of Moses? Look, I don't think we can come to a firm biblical answer to that question because the Bible does not tell us specifically, we want to make sure that any answer that we give to that is somewhat speculative. Now, TJ, I'm going to give you an answer in just a moment, but I want to make that clear. The answer I'm going to give you is not specifically given to us by the scriptures, so we have to be a little bit cautious. We have to say, well, we're, we're speculating a bit here. Now, what would be the speculation that I would offer to you for? I believe that God had a purpose for the body of Moses, because God was going to reanimate, resurrect the body of Moses, and use him for a special purpose, at the very least, to send Moses back to the earth to appear with Elijah at the Mount of Transfiguration. We know from the Gospels that Moses and Elijah appeared truly, really, physically, in bodily form, there with Jesus at the Mount of Transfigures. They had a little conference, a little conferring with one another. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Who were the people that appeared with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. Well, what happened to Elijah's body? Elijah never physically died on earth. He was carried up to heaven in a whirlwind accompanied by what seemed to be chariot of fire. The chariot of fire sort of seemed to run interference almost. And he was carried up to heaven in a whirlwind. God had a special purpose for the body of Elijah. So he carried him up to heaven. Perhaps even though Moses physically died on earth, God said, I've got a special purpose for that body. Michael, go down and get it. And in the getting of it, uh, he had to contend with Satan in order to get it. Now, again, TJ, I want to make clear, the Bible does not specifically tell you what I just told you, so we treat it lightly. 
We don't want to make a doctrine out of something that the Bible doesn't specifically tell us. But it is interesting to think, hmm, Moses did have a very special appearance in the Transfiguration. And Moses does seem to appear, there's controversy about this, perhaps as one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. Maybe that's a further purpose. Maybe God wanted to do something special with the bodies of Moses and Elijah, and this reflects that. That's the best answer I can give you, even with the recognition that the scriptures do not specifically tell us. All right, let me go on to the next question from Jeanette. Jeanette asks the question, we all know that Jesus is the word, but what exactly does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be the word? Well, Jeanette, you are asking a fantastic question. Again, I want to give great uh, credit to our viewing audience today. You guys are fantastic in the questions that you are asking. Okay, uh, we know from John chapter 1, where John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then he goes in and tells us more about the Word. John uses a very specific term to describe Jesus as the Word there, and the term is simply this, logos. Now, that term, logos, had a very rich background in both Greek thought but also in Hebrew or Jewish thought. In Jewish thought, the Word of God represented God himself. As a matter of fact, Jewish rabbis would sometimes use the phrase, the Word of God, instead of God himself. They would say, the Word of God appeared to Abraham, instead of saying that God appeared to Abraham. Now, this is tied up with some of the Jewish reverence for the name of God, but they would consider that the word of the Lord was a way of referring to God himself. It was their way of understanding what the Old Testament really tells us, that God is so intertwined with his own revelation from his word that there is a unity between God and his word. That's the background of the idea of the word... Uh, in Jewish thought. Now, the idea of the word in Greek thought is, in some ways, even more wonderful. In Greek thought, the logos, the word, was the organizing principle behind the universe. That's how Greek philosophers had thought about this idea of the logos, the word. They looked around the universe and they saw a universe that was ordered, that was organized, that had, to use a more modern term, design behind it. And they would say, well, who designed it? What was the designer? And they would say, it was the word. It was the logos. When John said that Jesus Christ was and is the word, the logos, there is a sense in which he was speaking to Greek thought and saying, you perceive that there is an organizing principle to the entire universe. I'm here to tell you that it is Jesus Christ. And he was also speaking to his Hebrew or Jewish readers saying, you understand that God has a way of revealing himself. God's revelation is sometimes known as his word. Let me tell you who the ultimate revelation of God is. 
So to say that Jesus Christ is the Word, as we see so beautifully expressed in John chapter 1, it is to tell us that he is the organizing principle behind all things. He's the mind that encompasses the universe, that he is God, and he is the ultimate revelation of God. One more thing. It is important to understand that God thinks so highly of his word that he identifies himself by title with his word. Think about that. If God thinks so highly of his word, should not we also think highly of his word? Listen, friends, you want to have the same opinion of God's word that God himself has. You don't want to think higher of God's word than he does, if that were possible. I don't know if that is possible. But you certainly don't want to think lower of God's word than he thinks of his own word. So again, I think that is a very important thing for us to consider and for us to look at. So let's continue to go on here. Next question comes from Dahlia. How is conviction from God different from condemnation from Satan in daily life when we regretfully sin? What a great practical question that is, Dahlia. When we sin and feel guilt, or some people call it conviction, sometimes it feels like condemnation. It's a bad feeling about our sin. How do we know if that bad feeling about our sin is coming from the Lord in conviction of sin or from the devil in condemning us as, you know, filthy people who have no right to come before God? Dahlia, very early in my Christian life, I heard somebody express it this way, and I'm simply going to pass it on to you. You can know the difference between condemnation and conviction— Again, that's condemnation from the devil and conviction of sin from God, from the Holy Spirit, by this. Conviction of sin from the Holy Spirit will drive you to God. It'll drive you to the cross. You'll say, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. I come to you, Jesus. Would you please deal with my sin? Now, the condemnation that comes from the devil has a different effect upon us. The condemnation that comes from the devil says something like this. You are such a filthy sinner, you have no business coming before God. Do you see the difference between the two? It is a pretty substantial difference and one that we have to pay attention to. So when you feel terrible about your sin, is that terrible feeling making you say, I need to run to God for the, con- for the um, cleansing of my sin? Or are you running away from God because you feel that you're such a filthy sinner, you have no place before him? If it's driving you to run away from him, that sounds like condemnation from the devil. If it's drawing you to run to God and receive forgiveness and cleansing from your sin, then that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Dahlia, I hope that helps you. And again, thank you for your wonderful question. Next, we go on to Antonio, who asks this question. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, what does it mean when we pray, thy kingdom come? As followers of Christ, what should our reactions be? 
Again, Matthew 6.10 in the New King James Version, Jesus instructed his followers to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, listen, Antonio, it does mean that we should desire for God's will to be done on earth and for it to be done completely unhindered, with nothing blocking it, with nothing stopping it, and that it should be done as unhindered on earth as it is in heaven. It does not mean that God intends everything that is true or will be true about heaven to be existing on earth right now. Friends, sometimes people say this. Sometimes people say this, and they'll say, well, uh, there is absolutely no sickness or disease in heaven. Therefore, it can never be God's will for there to be sickness or disease on earth. Now, it's just simply, well, it's true that there is no sickness or disease in heaven, but there's also no marriage in heaven. And we know God desires there to be marriage on earth, but there will be no marriage in heaven. We do know that there will be no persecution in heaven, but God has allowed there to be persecution on earth. We know that there will be no suffering or pain in heaven, but God has allowed for a redemptive purpose for there to be suffering and pain on earth. Now, we certainly don't want to say for a moment that all suffering and pain is from God. We don't want to say that all sickness is, is, is in God's purpose. God's purpose many times is to deliver his people from pain and suffering, to deliver his people from sickness and disease, but not in every case. God can have a redemptive and a teaching purpose in and through these things. So it means that we should desire and we should pray for God's will to happen on earth as absolutely unhindered it is in heaven. Now, ultimately, that's true. Ultimately, every purpose of God will be accomplished. We have no doubt about that whatsoever. But at least on a human perspective of looking at things, um, there is resistance to God's will. There is, um, you know, ways that God's will is thwarted. Again, not ultimately. Ultimately, the Lord will do everything just as he pleases. But for his purpose, he allows at least the apparent thwarting of his will to accomplish his greater will in all things. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Antonio. Next question comes from Bob. Bob asks, who is the bobblehead behind you today? Well, that would be the bobblehead of Sandy Koufax, a great pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Sandy Koufax, who was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1972, a great left-handed pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And as you might have guessed, Bob, yes, that uh, bobblehead is up there because uh, as of the recording of this on October 7th, 2021, last night, the Los Angeles Dodgers baseball team, I imagine there's people from other parts of the world who are listening to this, who cares about baseball, but it's an entertainment for me. Look, I, I grew up playing baseball, and uh, I love the game. I love following the game. And last night, the Los Angeles Dodgers defeated the St. Louis Cardinals in a one-game playoff to determine who would continue to go on in the postseason. It was a very exciting game with an exciting finish. And uh, even though I give a lot of credit to the St. Louis Cardinals because they're a marvelous baseball club, marvelous baseball team, 
I got to say, I'm happy that the Dodgers aren't moving on. Okay, forget about that. Let me continue on with a question from Carol. But before I do that, let me just simply say, we do want to welcome once again and acknowledge our TWR360 audience. Do you know who TWR360 is? This is Trans World Radio, and TWR360 is their online presence. Trans World Radio is a marvelous ministry that for decades has been spreading the gospel through shortwave radio. And as you might fully expect, in a more modern time, they're also spreading the gospel through their online presence. Uh, This YouTube video is being played on a portal through the TWR360 website. So I want to welcome and thank all of our TWR360 viewers from wherever they are all over the world. We're very pleased that you could join us today. And maybe I should apologize to you, especially for going on about American baseball just in the last few minutes. So for that, let me go on to our next question from Carol, who asks, what are some examples that we as Christians can or should do to bear fruit? Well, Carol, the thing that comes to my mind most immediately is what the Bible says about the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Remember what the Bible says about the fruit of the Spirit in, uh, for example, in Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now, these things that we list as the fruit of the Spirit, whatever we can do in our lives to demonstrate love, to demonstrate true joy in Jesus Christ, to demonstrate uh, peace and long-suffering, these are ways that we demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. This is how spiritual fruit is displayed in our lives. So the next time you are in a difficult situation, someone's really annoying you, and God gives you the ability, you trust in him, you're abiding him, and you can display what might be even termed supernatural love and long-suffering, that's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit on display. And that's just a simple way to understand. Go to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, and look at the fruit of the Spirit and just think of very practical ways how the fruit of the Spirit can be evident in the actions of your life. That is a way that we can bear fruit for God. And I guess our last question for the day is going to come from Tyler. Tyler asks this question. I want to know why Joshua told Israel that they wouldn't be forgiven of sin and couldn't follow the Lord in Joshua chapter 24, verse 19. So let me read you Joshua chapter 24, verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God and he will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. Well, Tyler, this is in Joshua's great final speech to the people of God. I'm turning it to it here in my Bible, Joshua chapter 24. And we have this remarkable statement, this remarkable speech that Joshua made to God's people at the very end here, right before. And he, I almost want to say this, he's using some Holy Spirit-inspired reverse psychology 
on the people of Israel. Do you know what reverse psychology is? Reverse psychology is basically you tell somebody you can't do something because you want them to do it. Uh, well, you, you can't go in through that door. And I say, well, now I want to go through in that door. So basically, Joshua is telling the people of Israel, I look at you, and you guys are a people that in many ways seem to be far from God. I'm not overconfident in your ability to trust in God and to follow him and to honor him. You're going to have to step up your game, so to speak, if you want to go forward and um, really follow the Lord in this particular way. I really think that's what he's doing here. He's warning them that it's not a light thing. It's not an easy thing to follow the Lord. And you, people of Israel, if you think, well, we follow the Lord and this is easy and we can just do it. We've been doing it all along. It's as if Joshua is saying, no, you haven't been doing it. I don't know if you can do it. I, I love the response of the people of God in this. It says there in verse 21, and the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. In other words, the response from the people is exactly what Joshua and the Lord desired. He wanted to stir up within them a strong response of saying, listen, you're saying that you don't know if we can, you don't think it's able for us, but we want to know that no, we will pursue the Lord, we want to. And then Joshua said, following in verse 22, Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, verse 23. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. Joshua understood that they needed to do these things if they would follow the Lord in truth. And Joshua was very concerned that they not have a light casual, unthinking commitment to the Lord. Listen, sometimes this is the greatest enemy that we face in our following of God. This sort of casual understanding, well, we're all serving the Lord. Oh, we're all doing these things. And uh, Joshua would not let the people of Israel get away with that. So he warned them very strongly. I don't think you guys can do it all a while, hoping that they would, hoping that they would rise up and answer him and saying, no, we are determined to serve the Lord as we should. Well, folks, that was the last question that we're going to answer today. Thank you so much for joining us on today's question and answer. God willing, and if we live, I'll be here next Thursday doing the same thing. I really enjoy these times, and I hope you do too. And if you have not been, uh, if your question was not dealt with, if our moderator didn't pass it on to you. Don't despair. We're going to look over the questions and uh, perhaps deal with them for our lead question next week. Again, we're just looking for the questions that will have the widest appeal to our general audience. I'm going to talk to my people and see if we can't arrange a giveaway for next week because I had so much fun doing it last week. Why don't we try to do another one this next week? Uh, look, we love giving things away. That's one of the things about the Bible resources that we provide. They are absolutely free. You can go online, uh, EnduringWord.com. You can go to Blue Letter Bible, blb.org. Those resources are available in a variety of languages, free. Now, the print books aren't for free. The print books we charge money for, but we love to give away the same material, the Bible commentary, 
absolutely free online and hope that you enjoy it and find good use from it. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. It's been a blessing to have you a part of our broadcast. And we will be with you next week, God willing, and if we live. Thanks so much. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.